exciting to see the Lord working in our lives, changing us, transforming us. All glory be to Him. Would you please open our Bibles to... First, we're going to open our Bibles to 1 Samuel. Or it means, I mean 2 Samuel, sorry. 2 Samuel, chapter 12. You can keep one finger there, and then the other finger is going to Revelation chapter 6. And today is part two, the what question about forgiveness. So for those who are visiting us, we have been looking at what the Bible says about forgiveness of sins. Revelation chapter 6, and first let's read 2 Samuel chapter 12. I want to invite you to stand if you can. 2 Samuel chapter 12, and you can see in the heading of your Bible, that's when Nathan comes to rebuke David. And let's go to verse 13. Remember after that parable that Nathan tells about the, the shepherd, Remember the, the shepherd, the man with the, the sheep, the, and that creates an indignation in David. Nathan says, that's you. So verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Repentance. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of, of this deed, you have early, utterly scorned the Lord. Well, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Now let's turn to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And you might be thinking, what have these verses to do with forgiveness? And we will see. So, verse 9, chapter 6 of Revelation. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You may be seated. Father, we ask the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you. Help us. Help me to be faithful. Help the congregation to be faithful. Thank you for this loving church. Thank you for their support, their, how much they treasure your word. I pray they would keep guarding our hearts to continue treasuring you more and more, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, two months ago, last August, month of August, President Biden announced that the federal government will forgive millions of student loans. Do you remember that? The student loan forgiveness. But as you look at what they are planning on doing, you realize that there is nothing of forgiveness in that. They call forgiveness, but there is absolutely nothing of forgiveness. Numbers, something like 87% of the American population do not have student loan debt. And yet, 100% of the population are required to pay that debt. <laughs> 87 do not have the debt, and 100% need to pay the debt. And they call that forgiveness. You think about forgiveness. Is that forgiveness? 
what they're doing. It does not cancel the individual's debt. It actually redistributes their debt and forces others to pay. Student loan forgiveness does not forgive anyone. It penalizes everyone. So you see how important it is for us to know that words have meaning. And the meaning have consequence. So when people start using the word forgiveness for situations that are not actually where forgiveness is taking place, we are perverting the word. And that word belongs to God. God is a forgiving God. We always must go to His word and to His character to understand what forgiveness is. And not let other people define. Amen? And that's what we have been doing. And we see, we started looking last Lord's Day how, how important the definition of forgiveness is. To know what forgiveness is. And also to know what forgiveness of sins is not. And that's what we are looking at. Uh, today the outline is a continuation of what we started last Lord's Day. So last Lord's Day we look at what is forgiveness of sins. And then we started looking at what is not. The question is, what is not forgiveness of sins? And we saw forgiveness of sin is not a, uh, a feeling. It's not simply saying it's okay. Forgiveness is not forgetting. So now we are coming to f- numbers 4 through 7. We are going to be looking this morning. At forgiveness is not always a one-time event. Forgiveness is not blind trust. Forgiveness is not the same as having a forgiving disposition. And then forgiveness is not the removal of natural consequences. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. And we, and I thought about reviewing what we saw last Lord's Day, but for time's sake, I cannot do that. And I hope that those who are not here, the members of this church who are not here, uh, I, I hope that you listen or watch the sermon. So, and that's a privilege and requirement of, of members to know what's been taught. So we are all on the same page. So I hope that you saw what divine forgiveness is. We define first divine forgiveness, God's forgiveness, because our way of forgiving one another is to be patterned after God. So we define what God's forgiveness is. Then we look at what Christian forgiveness is. And then we start looking at what forgiveness of sins is not. And we saw that forgiveness is not a feeling. It's not, oh, I don't feel like forgiving. Or I feel like forgiving. Now, feelings are important, but they are never the means to obey God's word. Feelings can never be in lordship over our lives to dictate how we obey God's word. Amen? So we saw that, then we saw that forgiveness is not just saying it's okay. We are in a culture where everything it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. It's not okay. Bible, the Bible has a way of exercising the transaction of forgiveness. And a lot of times when you say it's okay, we know that's not okay. Because later on we see the damage and how that was not dealt properly. And then we saw that forgiveness is not forgetting. We keep the memories not that simple to forget. We look at what the Bible says about not remembering. And now we continue. And it's a continuation of number three, the for, forgiveness is not forgetting. We come to forgiveness of sin is not always a one-time event. And what I mean by that, and that's important to clarify here, I, I strongly believe that forgiveness is a transaction that takes place in time, in a moment. That's very important. Uh, let's suppose I, I sin against Sam, and I come to Sam, and I say, Sam, I, I sin against you. Please forgive me. And as soon as he forgives me, we have a transaction, and that's accomplished. There was the forgiveness of sins right there. I don't believe that we forgive little by little until the day that we say, okay, now I'm ready to, to perform full forgiveness. No. Once there is repentance, there is confession of sin, and we obey the Lord and we forgive, the transaction is accomplished. What I mean by, because you may say, but then you're contradicting yourself. Now you're saying that's not a one-time event. It's not always, and here's why. Because I'm talking about our own hearts. I'm not talking about the transaction itself. I'm talking about the remaining sin in us. 
and how sometimes sins that we forgave, that there was the repentance that we forgave, we still need to deal in our own hearts to remind ourselves of the truth that we have forgiven that person. And here it's important to keep in mind that there are degrees of sin. Not every, every sin is sin. Amen? Every sin is heinous. But we know that there are degrees of sins. And, and some sins have greater consequences than others. Jesus told Pilate, The one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. You are sinning, but the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Scripture shows us that all sins are serious and offensive before God, but some sins are more serious than others. So, for example, I'm driving. Somebody cuts me off. And I get angry. I get angry. How dare you? Is that sin? Yes. Is that the same as... The consequences of that sin are the same as if I committed adultery. No. There are different consequences. They're all sin, but there are different consequences. An adultery has tremendous ramification that will affect so many other people. So as we think about degrees of sin, types of sins committed against us, I would say that most sins, most sins that we forgive each other in church, at home, are sins that do not have this impact in our lives. Amen? Most sins that we forgive each other are, are not sins that we have tremendous ramifications. It's not extremely heinous sins. That, can you imagine? Otherwise, every single sin would be a, a, a case of church discipline. We, that's not how it works. But there are sins that bring deeper and more serious consequences. And forgiveness of these sins will require more, more time to deal with that within us. Paul Tripp says, You may find yourself returning to old bitter thoughts and getting angry once again. And you need to confess that to the Lord and seek His help. So there will be times, brothers and sisters... When we are going to have to ask the Lord to forgive us for sins that we already forgave. How does that work? Because of the remaining sin. I know. I know that Ben repented. He's, he was broken. He came to me. He said, Google, I sinned against you. I embraced him. I forgave him. But throughout the weeks, months, that thought will come. The memory will come. And if I let that thing take over and cause me to sin, I need to repent to the Lord. Say, Lord, I had forgiven. That's forgiven. Why am I bringing this back? I cannot do that, Lord. Please forgive me. So there will be sins that it's not that easy for us to deal with. So that's why I'm saying sometimes... Yes, the transaction might take place in a specific moment in time. But we require more time for me to grow and master the art of forgiveness. I, I once heard someone saying, forgiveness is the work of a moment and the commitment of a lifetime. Forgiveness is the work of a moment and the commitment of a lifetime. I have no idea who said that, but I think it's very good and biblical. And that's basically what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew 18, when, when Peter comes to Jesus and says, should I forgive seven times seven? And Jesus says, what? Well, seven times seventy. What is Jesus teaching us? He's teaching us that forgiveness must become a lifestyle. It's not that it's a, forgive, no, it must be a lifestyle, a, a, a heart that learns the art of becoming more and more forgiving. So, that's number four. Number five. Another one. Forgiveness of sins is not blind trust. The bestowal, the giving of forgiveness with the transaction when someone repents is not the same as the restoration of broken trust. 
That's very important. Because some of you here carry an unnecessary and unbiblical guilt for not trusting someone who broke your trust. And people say, oh, you forgave. You need just to trust again. That's not how it works, brothers and sisters. That's not biblical forgiveness. The one who sinned and broke the trust cannot say, oh, since you forgave me, you've got to just trust me again. That's not how it works. Imagine a couple. They have been married for 40 years. Faithful, Christian couple. 40 years, no reason to question their trustworthiness, how faithful they are to each other. Until one day, the husband finds out that the wife committed adultery. The wife repents. She's broken. She's devastated. She leaves her job. She has no phone, no emails anymore to show her repentance. I have nothing to do with this man anymore. Devastated. Ask for forgiveness. He forgives her. Does it imply that he needs to trust her immediately? Think about a couple. The man is misusing the money. He realized that he's sinning with the money. He comes to the wife, please forgive me. I have sinned against the Lord, against you, by misusing the money. I've been wasting the Lord's money. Please forgive me. The wife forgives. Does it mean that she cannot check the bank account, check his credit card, and, and see what he's spending money with and talk to him? No. Of course she can. She must. Trust was broken. The relationship by forgiveness is back, but that trust was broken. Trust, you earn trust. Trust is something that you earn. You gain trust by proving yourself to be what? Trustworthy. Forgiveness is mercy, is grace. Forgiveness nobody deserves. Trust you deserve for showing yourself to be trustworthy. There is a massive difference between the two. Trust is earned by godly actions. So, for example, in Matthew 25, you have the parable of the talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. You prove yourself to be faithful and trustworthy. When Paul, in Acts 16, when he comes to the region of Timothy, he hears the testimony of the church about Timothy. How Timothy is trustworthy. That's important. And that's why he takes Timothy with him. Why? Because he heard about Timothy. People said well things about Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.2 Paul commands Timothy to entrust the gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Implying when you're going to prepare men for the ministry, you make sure that you're picking those who have proved themselves to be what? Trustworthy. Faithful men. 1 Timothy 3.10 The deacons in the church must be first tested and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves to be blameless. They gain the trust. They gain the trust. After a time, time of showing themselves faithful, now we can place them as deacons. We are not worthy of mercy. We are not worthy of grace. We are not worthy of forgiveness. But we are worthy of trust by our own actions. Amen? And once this trust is bro broken and shattered, we don't regain it automatically with forgiveness. We need to prove ourselves to be trustworthy again. If I, as your pastor, I break your trust, you find out that I'm doing some sinful things, I repent. I'm broken, devastated. I ask you to forgive me. I hope you forgive me.
But that does not mean that you need to have me back in the pastoral ministry. No. Some sins will remove a minister forever from his ministry. And other sins will require a long time for him to prove himself to be trustworthy once again. And gain the trust of the church. Imagine if an employee of yours come to you. you. You have a business. You have no idea this employee come to you crying. Crying. Repenting. Oh, Michael, I, I have been stealing from our business. I have been cheating on you. I have been taking some of money. Uh, I'm devastated. Please forgive me. Michael embraces him. Of course I forgive you. Does that mean that Michael have the obligation to keep that man at work? No. No. The trust was broken. The relationship between them, yes, by forgiveness, it's removed the obstacle. But that does not mean that it's automatically the trust again. So that's very important. Forgiveness is the work of the offended party. Trust is the work of the offender. The one who broke the trust has the duty of working to regain that trust. And brothers and sisters, this will guard us from unnecessary guilt. When people say, you, you, you need to take back. You need just to trust that person. Wait a second. That's not how that works. That's not biblical. We saw how in the Bible, trust you gain. Trust you gain by your lifestyle. Amen? And though the responsibility to regain the, the trust is the work of the one who committed the sin, you have the responsibility to do to others as the Lord, or as others would do to you. So, be careful to setting too high of a standard to regain that trust. And may the Lord give us wisdom in each situation. But we always must work with that too. How would I like someone to treat me if I broke their trust? Would I want them to put a standard that's impossible for me to reach? To regain the trust? Amen? Six. That's very important. Forgiveness is not the same as having a forgiving disposition. Or a forgiving heart. Psalm 86 verse 5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. Abounding steadfast love to all who call upon you. Our triune God has a disposition towards forgiveness. He's a forgiving God. And that's beautiful. That's glorious. But the disposition to forgive does not imply that He forgives everyone. Every time of every sin. Amen? He has a disposition to be forgiving. Does that mean that He forgives everyone? There is, there is no hell. There would be no point, eternal judgment. And disposition, the disposition to be forgiving is not the same as bestowing forgiveness upon someone who sinned against you. A lot of times people go to the text in Luke chapter 23. What is that text? Jesus on the cross. And what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. So first of all, we would have to decide if that text is actually in the original, in the autograph. What does it mean? It means that the earliest manuscripts, the most faithful and reliable ones, they don't have that verse. So that would require textual criticism. You see, just like the, the ending of Mark 16, the longer ending or the shorter ending. So if you have... 
in your Bible, you probably can go there and look at verse, 20, 30, verse 34 of Luke 23, and there will be a footnote saying, some manuscripts do not have this verse. And implying the earliest, and usually the earliest manuscripts are the most reliable ones because they were the closest ones to the time of the writing. So, but let's suppose, I don't want to take a different trajectory here, Let's suppose that's there, you know, let's suppose that's inspired, it's right there. Let me ask you, is Jesus forgiving those people? Is Jesus forgiving them? Yes or no? No. There are many occasions when Jesus says what? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Is that what Jesus is saying from the cross? He could say he has the power to forgive, but he's not saying your sins are forgiven. If this text, let's suppose this text is there in the Bible, it's part of the autograph, the inspired text, still we see Jesus with a forgiving disposition and not actually bestowing forgiveness upon people. There is no transaction here. He's showing himself to have a forgiving Disposition, a forgiving heart. And we cannot confuse the vertical aspect with the horizontal. The vertical is us giving to the Lord. The horizontal is the transaction between us and those who sin against us. And I think that's what happens a lot of times is people, they have a forgiving disposition, but because we are misusing the word, we say, oh, I forgive him. Forgiving someone who has not repented, has not asked for forgiveness, that's not biblical. We must have a forgiving disposition to give to the Lord. But it's not the same to have a forgiving disposition and to actually bestow forgiveness on someone. Uh, are we good? I look at you guys and just... <laughs> good. Okay. Uh, and another aspect of, as we are thinking about having... A forgiving disposition. We, we must distinguish between forgiveness of sin, when we forgive someone, to have a forgiving disposition, and actually the aspect of revenge and vengeance. That's very important. The disposition to be forgiving does not erase or abolish the desire for God to bring judgment upon sinners. Here's the first text that we read in our first sermon in this series, Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, is low to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and then what? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And look at that. But by no means, what? Clear the guilty. And he brings punishment, the next verse says. So our triune God is forgiving. He has a forgiving disposition. And at the same time, that does not annul or erase His glorious attributes of being wrathful, holy, perfect judge. So we need to put to death this bad theology that if you are forgiving, you can by no means long for God's judgments. And His holiness. That's not biblical. We must have both together. What the Bible calls us and, and, and demands from us is that we cannot by no means seek personal vengeance. No means. Personal vengeance. Paul says in Romans 12 verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says whom? The Lord. The Lord. When someone sins against me, against you, the temptation is to get bitter, angry, and then take the vengeance upon our own hands, right? That's all we want to do. Take vengeance upon our own hands. And the Bible tells us that we cannot, that, we cannot do that by no means. That's just... A big no. We cannot take vengeance upon our hands. The Word of God tells us that when we have the temptation to bring vengeance by our own 
hands, we are to do what? Give to the Lord. We surrender to Him. We give to Him. The vertical aspect of the process of forgiveness. I give to you, Lord. Is vengeance sinful in itself? That's a good question, right? Is vengeance, revenge, sinful in itself? If it was, God would be sinful. He would be a sinner because he says, vengeance is mine. Revenge is mine. So, what is ugly and sinful is always man's vengeance. Because it's always contaminated with sin. God's vengeance is always beautiful and deserving of our adoration. So, sometimes, and here's what we see. So, there was this heinous sin. Uh, the person gives to the Lord, surrenders to the Lord. And because we are giving to the Lord, consequently, there is a release, there is joy, peace. And then the person thinks that he forgave that person. No, he didn't. Because forgiveness is a transaction. What you did was you gave to the Lord. And when you obey the Lord, there is peace, there is joy. So, let's go to Revelation 6 now. That was the text that we read earlier. And this is an important text. As we are dealing with forgiveness. Revelation 6, verse 9 through 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Let me ask you, are you more loving than the saints in heaven right now? Are you more forgiving than the saints in heaven right now? These saints are glorified. They have no sin. They have no sin in them. They have been made perfect. And what are they asking the Lord to do? How long, O oh Lord, that you will forgive those sinners? Is that what they're asking? Is that what they're asking? What are they asking the Lord? To avenge. They are before God in heaven. They're under the altar. A picture of them just standing before God. These Christians in heaven, they're fully satisfied in the Lord. In the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. And yet, they're crying out for the Lord to avenge their death. They're not crying, how long, O oh Lord, before you forgive our enemies? It's a, what they're doing here, they're doing in heaven what Paul tells us to do on earth. Right? Paul tells us to do what? Do not avenge, give to the Lord. For the Lord says, vengeance is mine. What are they doing? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What they're doing in heaven, Paul tells us to do on earth. Uh, give to the Lord. And this petition is nothing new. That was the petition under the old covenant. The saints of the old covenant also would cry out for God's vengeance. So Deuteronomy 32, 43 Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, O gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who, have, who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Or Psalm 79, 10. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpour blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. So you see that's Old and New Testament connected. Giving to the Lord, asking Him to bring vengeance. In 2 Timothy, we look at this passage quickly, last Lord's Day. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, verses 14 through 16, Paul tells, And remember that this letter was read to the whole church. That's not a private letter. 
This letter was read to the whole church and other churches. So this is public what Paul is doing. He says, Alexander, and they all know him very well. Alexander, the coppersmith, the metal worker, did me great harm. He sinned against me. Look how he says, The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Look at that. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. That's a beautiful text. And here we see Paul, he has a forgiving disposition. Amen? Everyone deserted him. No one came alongside him. And what does he say? Is he saying, I do not charge you. I'm forgiving all of you who didn't show up. Is he saying that? What is he doing? He's giving to the Lord and showing a forgiving disposition. May not be charged you. He's not saying, I do not charge that against you. I'm forgiving all of you even though you never repented of deserting me. He's not doing that. He's giving to the Lord with a forgiving disposition. And then he talks about Alexander. He says that this man has done me great harm. And what does he do? The Lord, what? The Lord will repay him according to his works. Vengeance is the Lord's. And he gives to the Lord. Let me ask you, is Paul a loving man? Is Paul more loving than all of us? I'm pretty sure. Was Paul the love he had for the churches? No one here comes close to him. The love he had for the Lord Jesus. Was Paul a forgiving person? Yes. And yet, he shows us that we can be forgiving, loving, and at the same time, cry out for God's vengeance. Chris Brown, he says, it's not recorded that Paul ever forgave Alexander. He did not pardon his behavior. On the contrary, Paul told Timothy that he was resting in the truth that God would repay Alexander for his deeds. And he warned Timothy simply to beware of Alexander. Paul is distancing himself from that man and giving to the Lord. He's not forgiving Alexander. He's giving to the Lord and releasing all bitter and angry thoughts and dispositions from his heart. So Paul, who was very loving, very forgiving, he also says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be what? A curse. So that reminds us that even when we, are, we have a forgiving disposition, a loving heart, that does not deny the fact that we can pray imprecatory prayers. Paul also commands the church to excommunicate those who are unwilling to repent. And then some people are going to say, oh, but that's Paul. I'm a red-letter guy. I just love Jesus' words. <laughs> Paul is angry. He's a chauvinist. He has his own standards for women. Oh, no, I don't like Paul. I like Jesus and the red letters. Go there. And you see that the man who embodies forgiveness like no other, Jesus Christ, he is the perfect image of forgiveness. Forgiveness marks his ministry from birth to ascension. And yet, and yet, he talks about church discipline, he talks about excommunication, Matthew 18. He talks about not forgiving and withholding forgiveness of others who have not repented, John chapter 20. And Jesus himself prays imprecatory prayers. Woe to you! Woe to you! Woe to you! What is that? But imprecation. Calling God's judgment. So, in our theology and understanding of forgiveness, we must have a heart that's 
biblically guided, amen? Not, 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 not feeling controlled, but biblically guided. And, and in our hearts, must, the, the Holy Spirit must have this space for, for Him to, to have a forgiving disposition. We must be marked by forgiving disposition. And yet, not erase and annihilate the idea of calling God to avenge. Bring revenge. Revenge. And His holiness to be exalted. The problem is, we have become very soft in a sinful way. We have been fed an unbalanced diet of God's Word. And we only want to go to, oh, Jesus says, love your enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies. Amen. He said that. But he said many other things too. The whole Bible is Jesus' words. And we cannot just emphasize something at the cost of other truths. And I think that's what has been happening in the church, especially in the area of forgiveness. We have been emphasizing so much one aspect of the word and forgetting the other aspects. So, last part. Last one here. Uh, let me just go back here. Yes. Forgiveness of sins is not the removal of natural consequences. That's very important. Forgiveness of sins is not the removal of natural consequences. Psalm 103, the Lord tells us that He removes our sin as far away. As far as the east is from the west... Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been adopted by God. We are loved by God. We can dwell with God in His house. All the blessings of forgiveness. But all these blessings do not deny the truth that those forgiven by the Lord still face the consequences of sins. Sins committed prior or after being saved. That's very important. The bestowal of forgiveness does not always cancel or remove the consequence of the sin. Ken Sandy, he writes, Forgiveness does not automatically release the wrongdoer of all the consequences of his sin. So one example is in Numbers. If you go to the Old Testament, Numbers 14, verse 20 through 23, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned, I have forgiven according to your word. But truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of, this, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test this ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. Forgiveness and consequences of their sins. And that's something we need to be aware, brothers and sisters. Uh, sometimes you have situations with Christian organization. A Christian organization or a, a, a Christian missionary organization, and suddenly you find out that they were defrauding you. They're misusing your money. They're sinning against the Lord and against you by how they're using their money because they're lying to you as to what they were doing with the money. And then they come and they say, please, forgive us. We have sinned against you. Then you say, of course I forgive you. But I want my money back. Oh, if you forgave, there should be no consequences. So, those are things important to keep in mind. Forgiveness of sins does not automatically eliminate the consequence of sins. Think about a young woman prior to, to be saved. She has an immoral lifestyle. She contracts a sexual transmitted disease. She gets saved. She repents. Does that mean that that disease is going to vanish once she gets saved? There are consequences. 
a young man. He's a Christian. One night, messing around with the friends, drink too much. Get to the car, some other kids in the car, gets in a car crash. The other two kids die. He repents, he's broken, devastated, he can't believe what he did. Does the Lord forgive him? Yes, of course. Will those two men be raised back to life? No. Will he escape jail? No. So there are consequences for sins. And, and that's very important to understand that it's not because the Lord has forgiven us that suddenly the consequences vanish into thin air. And that's the passage that we read earlier. Remember David, 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord forgives David. He repents. I have sinned. I have sinned. And we know that he said more because when you read the Psalms, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, we know what, they are, what he's saying to the Lord. I have sinned against you and you only, Lord. And the Lord does what? Nathan says, the Lord has removed your sin. He took away. The relationship between you two are restored now. But you have the consequence of that sin. The baby will die. And even after the death of the babe, baby, David faced horrible consequences. Ongoing f violence in his family. One son, Amon, raped David's daughter, Tamar. Another son, Absalom, then killed Amon. Later, Absalom tempted to take over David's kingdom. All the consequences of sin. And especially for those who are in authority. They are an example for others to look and see the devastating consequence of sin in someone's life. Christians are not punished by God in the sense of atoning for their sins. Amen? Christ Jesus and Him alone atoned for our sins. He was punished for our sins. That's very important. When we suffer... The consequences, those consequences are not atoning for our sins. No. Jesus Christ himself took upon all the penalty of sin that we deserve. Some scholars don't like to use the, lang the language of punishment. They say, no, punishment is, is, is reserved just for the death of Christ. But I think that there are temporary punishments that we go through. And these punishments are actually the discipline of the Lord. He's disciplining us, training us into godliness. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. The Lord disciplines him whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Can Sandy, he writes, This is not to say that God is unmerciful. He's quickly to remove the penalty of separation. And often he spares us from many of the consequences of our sins. When he does allow certain consequences to remain for a time, it's always to teach us and others not to sin again. Full and free forgiveness will not always absorb all the consequences of the sins. God's discipline is a merciful instrument to make us more like Christ. There are consequences for our sins. And for us parents... That's a vital lesson in teaching our children. You have a child, maybe he's a Christian, he's coming to know Christ. That child sins, comes to you, mommy, daddy, I, I sin against you, please forgive me. Of course I forgive you. But you will reap the consequence of that sin. You will not go to the party, as we told you. But if you forgave me, I forgave you. And our relationship is restored. That sin is no more. But that doesn't mean that there are no consequences. Because once you start removing the consequences, you are perverting the gospel of Jesus. And you're teaching a messed up gospel to your children. The consequences are important and vital. And comes also the aspect of restitution. How about restitution? All right? If I repented and asked for forgiveness and you forgave me, should I pay restitution? And the Bible says, yes, of course you should. 
There are occasions when true repentance will be demonstrated through the payment of restitution. Remember Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19? His repentance is demonstrated in him coming to the Lord and saying, I'm going to give the money back. Fourthfold to those who I took. There will be times when we forgive and there are times when we absorb the consequence of the sin. That's fine. You don't need to worry about paying that. I'll, I'll, I'll cover that. But there are other times when we are not going to do that and there are times when it's sinful for us to do that. Sometimes absorbing the consequence of a sin when somebody should pay restitution is actually more harmful to that person because that person should pay the restitution to have that taste the bitter taste of sin and not do it again. John MacArthur, he says, going back here, whenever an actual loss has been caused by a wrong, restitution is certainly appropriate. The granting of forgiveness for the guilt of the offense does not automatically nullify the need to make reparations, especially when the injured party's loss is quantifiable. Then he says, whether the loss was caused deliberately or accidentally, restitution should be made. Restitution should never be regarded as meritorious, as a meritorious act of penance. The purpose of restitution is simply to restore the value of the damage, of the damages. And then he says, the one forgiving is free, of course, to forego restitution and to choose to suffer the wrong without demanding rep repayment. But that's the offended person's option. The offender, if truly repentant, must be willing to, to right the wrongs as much as is possible. And sometimes what is taken is not material. Sometimes it's your character. Slander, false accusations, lies about your character. Chris Brown, he says, Restitution may not always be monetary. The person who has spread a falsehood about someone should seek to communicate correct information just as widely as the false rumor has spread. People start slandering about your character, lying about you. How is he going to pay restitution? He's going to go as far as he spread those lies to show repentance. And the goal of restitution is not just simply... To bring what was lost. I don't think that's the goal of restitution primarily. The goal of restitution is to show true repentance. That's the main purpose of restitution. The main goal in paying restitution is the removal of all stub stumbling blocks to future reconciliation between the wrongdoer and the one wronged. I'm paying restitution because I want to remove every single obstacle that might come in our way. I took money from Esther. I stole him. I'm going to give the money back to him. Esther, I don't want ever anything to be between us. I spread gossip about Charlene. I slander her character. I repent. And Charlene, I'm communicating and I'm going to show you. I'm communicating all those people that I talk evil about you. And I'm saying that I sinned. I was wrong. I don't want anything between us. Because if I don't do that, she has all the rights to question my repentance. What repentance is that that you're not willing to show the fruit of repentance? So, to finish here, I need to finish. Let us always remember that the consequences of our sins are never God's means to bring forgiveness. No. It's not like by having the consequence, He's forgiving us little by little. The consequences have nothing to do with penance that brings forgiveness. No. For the Christian, the consequence of the sin is God's gracious instrument to deliver us from evil, future evil, Create a bitter taste in our mouths of sin. And remember and cry out, Maranatha, come Lord, when these consequences will disappear. 
sometimes people get upset. Are you saying the fear of the Lord would encourage me to stop sinning? Mm-hmm. Fear of punishment, yes. The Bible uses fear of God's punishment as an instrument to cause us to stop sinning. How many of us were tempted to sin when we were young, but we knew that when we came back home, if the dad found out, that would not be good. And then what did you do? Sorry, brothers. I'm out of here. Fear of punishment can be a wonderful instrument to get us out of trouble. So we, we, we are going to still carry some of those consequences. We, we still carry consequences of sins, uh, adultery, divorce, abortion, so many other sins that we committed, we carry the consequence with us. And that's God's way to discipline us, to instruct us. And I think above all, to remind us that there is a better place to be. And that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the proclamation that the greatest consequence of all has been removed. These consequences are nothing. The greatest consequence of all has been removed in Christ. And that is to be away from God's smiling face. The gospel of Christ removes the greatest consequence. We are brought into God's presence. And all these consequences here are means to remind us that the day is coming, the time is coming, when they will vanish because of Christ. We will not carry this consequence anymore. Amen? Amen. But then you think, for those who are not in Christ Jesus, that's very sad because the consequences here are actually light and delightful compared to eternity. The greatest consequence will be to be under his wrath for all eternity. And the glory of the gospel is that today is the day. Today is the day. Today you're hearing the gospel. Today is the day. His arms are open. Run to him. Confess your sins. He will embrace you. He will kiss you. And he will bring you home. Amen. Lord, we, we thank you for your word, the complexities of your word, and the simplicity of your word, Lord. It challenges us, it confronts us, it humbles us, and at the same time it comforts us. It brings joy and hope. And that's who you are. We can never master you, Lord. You master us. Your ways are not our ways, but your ways are always perfect, full of joy, and, and help us. Help us to embrace your word, Lord. Help us to take hold of your word and apply it to our lives. Thank you for forgiving us, removing the guilt the liabilities, bringing us home. Lord, right now, we even thank you for the consequence that we have for our sins. Thank you that those consequences train us to renounce sin, teach others about how horrible sin is, and yet cause us to long for your coming. And we say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. There's something much better than this present time. I pray you would help us as we are walking through this series on forgiveness, Lord. I pray you would help us to embrace all that your word has to say about this topic. Not just the aspects that we like, 
but all that we are commanded to embrace. And we need your help. We need your mercy. Help us to be a forgiving church. Help us to be like you, always ready and eager to forgive. Giving to you the wrongs done to us. Help us never to take vengeance upon our hands, Lord. Thank you for Jesus and the redemption that we have. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.